We are going to enter into our third message of the series today. And before we advance too quickly into our training for reigning message, I think we need to backtrack. Um, we need to understand when Jesus came into the world at the perfect time, when he left heaven and took on the shape, actually born as a baby and came to our world, and when he began to disciple people, he came into a particular context. He arrived in a day when they didn't have internet and phones. He arrived in a day when the actual teaching mechanisms through the Jewish community was through rabbis. And uh, with that context in mind, we have to understand that historical background before we can understand how he was making disciples of the 12. And then today we're going to look at and see how he made disciples of the 72. And so we're actually going to look ahead at year three of his discipleship program um, a little bit later. But I want to read Luke 640, the words of Jesus. He said this, students are not greater than their teacher, but the student who is who is fully trained will become like the teacher. In an article by Jonathan Doherty called Discipleship is Jewish, he wrote some things that were very interesting. He said, in the days of Jesus, all young boys were taught the Torah and the prophets. That's the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. And beginning at age five, they began to teach them these things. In fact, they taught them to memorize the first five books of the Bible and all the books of the prophets. At age 12, they would uh, then apprentice boys. Some would go to be craftsmen. Some would go to be carpenters. If you remember, Jesus was a carpenter in the line of his father's work. Some would become stonemasons. Some would become farmers. But those that were exceptional in their craft of Scripture were apprenticed to a sage. And it's very interesting to me that uh, the sage would be trained, would train these young men to become rabbis. Jesus was not chosen to become a rabbi, nor were any of the 12 disciples. They were not the first round draft picks. So when Jesus chose his disciples, they were the second stringers. But who could have missed Jesus? Come on. He knew the scriptures like nobody. But this young apprentice would leave his home and move in with the sage. He studied everything about him. To a disciple, his master is more than just a teacher. The disciple's master was regarded more highly than his own father. And here was the reasoning. They thought because an earthly father brought you into this world in which we live, the sage was able to usher you into the world to come or paradise. And so they needed this separation from your home. You had to leave to go to become a rabbi. And you had to live with this person who would actually train you. Jesus said this in Luke 14, 26. He said, if any man would come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life also cannot be my disciple. You remember that? It's a tough passage. Now it may make more sense for you when you understand the historical context. This word hate used here is actually a Hebraic idiom. And it's a language play to compare things in language. And what, what's happening in this, Jesus is comparing that you must love Him so much more than your own parents, so much more than your own family, that in comparison, you hate them. 
But he didn't actually mean to hate them with an anger. He meant this as an idiom. Last week we talked about James and John. You remember when Jesus called James and John, it says that they left their boat and their father. So this whole leaving of your family to to follow a rabbi was kind of built into his discipleship plan. And so James and John had to leave their father Zebedee and they had to follow Jesus. What's interesting about the discipleship of rabbis in the days of Jesus was their textbook was only the, the Old Testament and their teachings were all oral. It was an oral tradition. One rabbi would repeat over and over and over again to his student what he wanted him to learn. The student would then go and practice over and over again till they understood what was meant. They would memorize the messages. There weren't any books. There was no YouTube video. Everything was an oral tradition when Jesus entered the world. And he did this by design. Jesus could have come into the world today and he could have broadcast his message everywhere. All of his miracles could have been recorded on tape, but he chose not to. He chose to come in a time when it was a life-on-life involvement that was involved in discipleship. Doherty says that even the Sermon on the Mount, for example, why do we read in different parts of the Gospel where the Sermon on the Mount seems to take place in different locations? He says it's because Jesus probably was repeating his message, message over and over again. And the disciples would be listening to his teaching. And then they would go around the campfire at night. They would ask additional questions. What do you mean, blessed are the poor, Jesus? And he would answer them as his disciples with deeper teaching. He was giving them keys to the knowledge of the kingdom. He was giving his disciples more understanding than he did to the general public. And so we have to understand that the discipleship that was happening... The radical discipleship that was happening was different in that day than it is in most of our North American churches. They practiced the art of imitation. The teacher um, would, would train the disciple to become like the teacher. It was enough just to be like the teacher. And that was the training mechanism. The rabbi would want that disciple to become like him. They would imitate the rabbi's actions and speech. They learned how the rabbi conducted himself in life, business, marriage, and family, especially since the disciple lived with him. They even watched what sandal the rabbi put on first. And so that they could actually imitate that. They watched what he ate for breakfast. It seems to me like that's a little OCD. That's kind of weird. What's he putting on his, his, uh, his cereal? Is that sugar? Is it refined? Is it coconut? But the disciple wanted to know everything about the rabbi so that they could imitate because it was a tradition that did that. Multiplication of the disciples was the end goal. The rabbi wanted to teach a disciple who could raise up his own disciples and fully train him in the way that he was trained before and then the generation before trained him and it goes back year after year. That was the way of the rabbis. And when fully trained, the student would become a master teacher. And the hope was that when the student was trained, he would raise up a new generation of disciples radically committed to the oral teachings that were handed down. The torch of the Torah, 
the first five books of the Bible, Moses' writings of the law, and all the writings of the prophet was handed off to that young disciple who now became a master teacher who was empowered to go and do the same. But this could only happen through life-on-life relationships. This didn't happen through classes, although classes aren't bad in and of themselves. It falls way short of the discipleship model that Jesus has in store for you and me. Sometimes we settle for, watch this video, it'll teach you so much. My son, who has a real heart for his generation, he's 26, said that a lot of people, a lot of his generation is saying, I really don't need to go to church anymore because all I have to do, if I want to watch Timothy Keller, if I want to watch anybody preach a sermon, I can just stream it online. I can have instant church on my phone. I, I think Jesus would cringe if he heard that. I think he would tell us as a church, to us older generations, are you willing to invest into the younger? And he would ask the younger generations, do you really want community on a phone? Or do you want to experience the best I have in store for you through radical discipleship? Jesus sometimes says confusing words. And before we jump into our, our look at the first mission trip of the 72, I want us to take a look at Matthew 23, verses 8 through 10. It won't be on the screen. Verse 8, Jesus says this, Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher, and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you have only one teacher, the Messiah. Kind of seems egocentric. He comes into a rabbinic system and he says, okay, no, no more of that stuff. There's a new way. And I believe the reason why Jesus was saying this was first he believed in the priesthood of all believers. He understood that the Holy Spirit was distributed to everybody who would believe in the future. And our focus had to move from not becoming disciples of the rabbi, but our focus now in the new covenant is we want to become disciples of Jesus. We don't want them to become like a good man or a good woman. We want them to become like Jesus. That's the goal now in discipleship. Amen? And if you're involved in a discipleship relationship right now, they don't need to become like you. They need to become like Jesus. Paul said it this way, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, And you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Why is it important for you and me to become Christ-like? Why is that so radically important? My sins are forgiven. I've been born again. My future is sealed in heaven. But why is it so important for us to become like Jesus on this earth? It's because people are watching. It's because there's people around you who need to see Jesus alive in a human body again today. People need to see if Jesus was to walk the earth again, what would he look like? And so we want to become like Jesus so others will know. We also want to become like Jesus because it's just a better way to live. I heard somebody say the other day that if I live my life on earth... And I, and I die and I, I find out in the end that all this Christianity stuff was not true. 
at least my life on earth was lived better. I just cringed. Because if I live my life on earth, and I'm, I'm learning how to follow Jesus, and it's not easy, is it? Do you find it easy to die to yourself? I don't. But if I face God and find out that everything I lived for was a lie, that would make him a liar. And if God is a liar, I want no part of him. So I would say this to that person, and I did. I believe with all my heart that what Jesus teaches is completely true. He is 100% who he is. And as I learn to imitate him, and I invite you to imitate Christ with me, I do this based on what I believe is absolute truth. And it's not happen chance. See, I believe the focus of the church needs to shift back towards a Jesus-like discipleship. Where it's life on life. Where it's walking with people. Asking questions. Making mistakes. It's okay if we make mistakes because guess what? We are going to. What matters the most is after we make a mistake that we come back to Jesus. We let him teach us how to succeed the next time. Have you found in your own life that you're repeating the same lesson over and over? Who struggles with patience? What does Jesus usually do when we struggle with patience? He puts you in a situation, right? Where you learn now how you're going to learn to practice patience. I, I got a couple tips for you that's helped me. Because I'm very impatient at times. At the grocery store. Choose the, the line that has the most people. It just will completely go against your grain. And while you're in line, strike up a conversation. Try to be Christ-like. Hey, how's it going? It looks like we got about 20 minutes here. So how's your day going? <laughs> yeah, I chose the longest line. Why do you do that? Well, I'm an impatient person. Well, isn't this making you more impatient? No, I'm learning just to cool my jets. Another thing my son practiced, because he used to drive pretty fast, is he intentionally goes in the slow lane. <laughs> um, you ever notice how people irritate you when they're going so slow and they're in front of you? You might have a patience issue. So there's ways we can actually get after some of our character flaws and ask Jesus, give us a plan. How can I get better at this? We're going to look at now at Luke 10, chapter 10, and we're going to take a look at really the first sending of the 72 on a mission trip. One thing I've noticed on mission trips is, is God uses these things to expose so many things in our lives. A lot of times we're traveling to an international place where we don't know the language. We get nervous. And all of a sudden, insecurity surface. And God just seems to minister in powerful ways. Because we're out of our normal context. And I, I believe this is in play here as we read together. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. It says, The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into the fields. You get the context? Two by two, they're going ahead. And he asked them to do something. One of the first things he asked them to do is to pray. To pray to the Lord of the harvest. To pray for him to raise up more people to send. 
every day on our watch or on our phones with the Multiply staff, at 10.02, we get a reminder to pray to the Lord of the Harvest. And people all over the world pray daily in their time zone at 10.02 for Jesus to raise up people who will say yes to him and bring the gospel to places that need it. And I invite you to do the same. Set your alarm on your phone. Um, I have to have mine go to vibrate. I'm sometimes in meetings. Okay. If you're at a multiply event, when the phones go off, we don't say it's 10.02, we got to pray. Everybody just stops and we just pray. We just, it's so accustomed to doing that. So we invite you to do that. I invite you to pray the same thing. Before God sends you on your next mission, wherever it is, it could be across the street, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up more workers. Now let's look at verses 3 and 4. Jesus starts to give some instructions. And this one's scary. Now go and remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals, and don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Doesn't sound too promising, does it? I'm sending you out as a lamb among the wolves. I raise lambs for 4-H as a, as a kid. And can I tell you this? They don't have very sharp teeth. They're not very good fighters. In fact, they just run. When dogs would come, they would just run. They're defenseless. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, on this mission trip, you're like a lamb among wolves. Would that make you nervous? He says, oh, also, don't take any money. Don't take a bag. Your sandals, don't take another one. And and don't talk and stop and talk to anybody. What was Jesus trying to do here? What were the lessons, the overarching lessons he was trying to teach the 72? I believe it was two things. Number one. You need to learn that I am your protector. I can protect you. Jesus wanted them to believe that, to practice that, to take a risk. I will protect you. And the second one is, I believe he wanted them to know that he was their provider as well. By the way, nothing's changed for you and me. Our true protection is found only in Jesus. Our true provision, it's not through a job, because that job can go away. It's not through who you know on earth. Our provider is God himself. Every good and perfect gift comes down from heaven. It's because of him. I'm now going to read some of the instructions he lays out. We're going to read a little bit of a passage here. It's going to take a while, but it's important that we get the context of what Jesus was asking of these disciples. Verse 5, he says, Whenever you enter someone's home, first say, May God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. If they are not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. But if a town refuses to welcome you, go into the streets and say, we wipe even the dust of your town from our feet to show that we have abandoned you to your fate. And know this, the kingdom of God is near. I assure you, even wicked Sodom will be better off than such a town on judgment day. 
Now Jesus starts to talk about some of the judgments. We don't like that side sometimes of Jesus, do we? It's painful, but listen to this. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. Yes, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. And you people of Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No. You will go down to the place of the dead. And then he said to his disciples, Anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. And anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. And anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. Those are some pretty tough words on the assignment, aren't they? So he sends them off two by twos, village to village, looking for houses of peace. And all along, Jesus is getting ready to come behind them pronounce the good news, to present himself. But he believed that these 72 had what it took to be front runners of the gospel message. After they go out, they conduct their ministry, they come back and they're very excited. Verse 17 said, when the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Interesting, isn't it? That that's the one thing that's recorded here in Luke. They rejoiced about supernatural activity. I don't know if you've been involved in supernatural activity, but there's times when God asks you to intervene. He asks you as a believer with the Spirit of God in you to help set somebody free who might be involved in demonic activity. And they're set free and they listen to the name of Jesus because... When we pray in Jesus' name, the King shows up. And the King wants us to live lives of freedom, of worship of Him. And anything that stands in the way, He wants to clear out. And that's exciting. We have a, a work in Southeast Asia right now where our evangelists will go into a village and usually at the village we hear from them that God uses them to do a miracle. And they're real humble leaders. Most of them have been persecuted for their faith. And they may do a healing of a, it could be a, an illness that they're healed. It could be a demonic presence that they cast out. And the whole village knows this happens. And you know what happens when they present Jesus after that? Usually the entire village comes to Jesus. But these young leaders know, don't get too excited about that. Because we have a lot of young believers that might run after things like that. They may run after supernatural activity instead of Jesus himself. And sometimes we can get so excited about our ministries that we forget what we should be most excited about is God. His role in our life. His love for the world. So Jesus goes on and he teaches in verse 18. He says, yes, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Jesus shows them again that he's sovereign here. And in verse 19, he says this, Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. And you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. And then I love this. This is a very important verse here, verse 20. 
But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. Jesus does the most amazing debrief of their mission trip right here. He says, yes, I know I gave you authority to do such things. Why are you so surprised? By the way, I saw Satan fall from heaven. But don't rejoice because of that. Rejoice because you're one of my children. Rejoice because your name is registered in heaven. You are now a creature that's set apart for me forever. You are my beloved. Rejoice over that. Rejoice that you belong to the family of God. Do not rejoice because you can do supernatural things that are temporary. Rejoice that forever you will be a part of my family. And your name is registered in heaven. And when you show up in heaven, I'm going to say, I know you. Welcome. I believe Jesus is training us so that we can reign with him forever. This earth is so temporary. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priest. A holy nation. God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Mercy. Verse 11 says this, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that war against your very souls. Peter says this is all temporary. Bethany Church, did you realize you were part of a holy nation and a royal priesthood? And when you're in heaven, God's going to view you as a royal priest, holy unto him. Brothers and sisters with Jesus. Empowered to rule and to reign under his lordship. The scriptures even say that we are going to judge the angels. Verse 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you are going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? There was a lot of fighting going on. And then verse 3, here's what Paul says. Don't you realize that we will judge angels? Surely you should be able to resolve ordinary disputes. Can you see how high our calling is? When Jesus returns, we're going to be standing with him. When he judges the world and when Jesus says... This person's name is registered in my book of life. We're going to go, amen, we agree. And when they say this person is not, we're going to say, sadfully, we agree. And when the angels are marched before him in judgment, and he says, this one rebelled against me and is not fit for my kingdom, we're going to say, we fully agree 100% with you. We're going to stand with Jesus in judgment of angels. I can't fathom that authority. But most of us are living with our eyes horizontal on earth. We think that this is it. This is how we, all we have. But Jesus is calling us to something higher. I want to challenge you this week with a couple things. First is this. I want you, if you feel you need somebody to disciple you, ask somebody who is modeling Christ's likeness to disciple you. My son, who's 26, interned in a church a couple years ago. 
and he wanted to learn how to pray. So he joined the prayer team. And you know who God used? It wasn't even the pastors in the church who God used to disciple him. Two women, one in her 50s and one in her 70s. And to this day, my son says, I learned more about prayer from a 70-something-year-old woman than any pastor I've ever been with, including his dad. And I'm so grateful. Discipleship can come in different ways. Sometimes we can disciple in a certain area of our life. Sometimes we can say, I want something bigger. I want a total life discipleship. Will you invest into me over the coming years and months? I encourage you to take a, take a risk. Join a community where you see good modeling of Jesus and jump in and ask them to teach you how to follow Jesus. Maybe you're pretty mature in your faith. I'm going to challenge you. Will you consider inviting somebody to say, are you interested in discipleship? Remember what Jesus did. It was life on life. Invite them into your life. Don't just sit down with a book and study it. That doesn't get us very far. Invest your life into another life. And then lastly, I'm going to encourage you to ask Jesus for a special assignment this week. The 72, you see that assignment they had? It was a mission trip. They came back. They were debriefed by Jesus, put things in perspective. What if you ask God for an assignment this week? As I was praying about this message, I actually got a picture from God. I don't often get pictures, but I did. And I approached Jesus. He was on his throne. He was seated, but he was smiling. He was casual, and he had something in his hand, and he stuck it out. It was a scroll of papers. And I identified that that was an assignment that he was handing out. And, I, and he asked me, do you want this assignment, Mark? I said, yes, I do. He said, then you're going to have to take it. So I literally took the papers, the scroll out of his hands and said, this assignment is now mine. Thank you, Jesus. I don't get many of these pictures, but I did this week. And I think it's because he's inviting you to do the same. I believe Jesus is trying to hand out so many assignments in this world, but he's looking around. He's saying, who wants one? Who's willing to take it? Because I'm not going to give it without their permission. They need to say yes. And he's looking, he's saying, do you want an assignment? I have a special one for you. I'll coach you. I'll I'll be your rabbi. And he may even have you invite somebody to make it a two by two. So that's my challenge to you. And I and I encourage you, if God gives you an assignment, will you share with at least one person what he's inviting you into? I'm going to invite the band, the worship team to come up, if they will now. And I'm just going to invite us to pray. Invite us to pray about those two things as we close the service. Jesus, we want to be all about you, so we are open to your discipleship and we are open to walking in community with somebody else in discipleship. So here we are. Take us. Use us. And Lord, some of us need an exciting assignment. Something that you invite us into, not something that we make up. It may be a hard assignment. It may be an easy assignment. But I pray you give us courage. The things that you're inviting us into, will you give us the ability to say yes? The desire to say yes? And then to trust you. To trust you with the outcome. 
to enjoy the journey. Lord, we're yours. Teach us. Teach us, Lord, how to become more like you as we follow you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.